0: Please pray with me. Lord, indeed, we desire to be a blessing in your eyes. And so we do pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This Friday, Independence Day. 232 years ago, our founders signed the Declaration of Independence and declared this country free from the control of Great Britain. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful to be an American citizen. I'm well aware of the fact that America is far from a perfect country. But I love this country. Everything about who I am, my faith, my values, my outlook on life, it was all shaped and formed in the context of these United States of America. My heart resonates with the core values that this this country holds forth. Concepts of life, concepts of liberty and justice for all. The truth that all people are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable, God-given rights. I love the inscription found on the Statue of Liberty, that great poem by Emma Lazarus, which ends like this. It says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now, we haven't, as a nation, always perfectly practiced these ideals, but I'm struck by how biblical many of these references uh, are. References to Scripture and, uh, and to biblical concepts are found everywhere throughout our nation's early history, our documents, our buildings, our monuments. Many of our country's founders were professing Christians And that's exactly why I believe that we as Christians need to be particularly careful about where our ultimate allegiance lies. Maybe because so many of our nation's ideals are biblical in nature and origin, maybe because of that too many people end up with, with a civil religion of sorts. God, country, apple pie, that kind of thing. So I think that one of the crucial questions that faces us this morning, that faces God's people, the American church as a whole, is this. Will we be American with a pinch of religious flavoring, or will we be Christ's people with a pinch of American flavoring? The question could be asked of any of us, regardless of what country we call home. Where does our allegiance ultimately lie? See, the Scriptures give us a very clear picture of God's people as sojourners, strangers, exiles, foreigners in this land, a people who live in every nation, but whose primary citizenship is in heaven, from which we await our King and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way John Piper puts it. He says, I have a vision of the church as the freest of all peoples in the world, free from fear and greed because the kingdom to which we belong cannot be shaken, and because our true fatherland is heaven. I have a vision of the church with strong desires not shaped by the persuaders of this world, but shaped by the messages coming from the fatherland. Oh, for a church with a single and radical allegiance to the king who said, My kingdom. Is not of this world. Over here we have the American flag. Most of you probably know the Pledge of Allegiance by heart. And over here we have the Christian flag. Do you know that Pledge of Allegiance? It reads like this I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty for all who believe. So I think the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is it possible for us to pledge allegiance to both? I think it's safe to say that America is not exactly moving toward God. We live in what many now call a post-Christian country. And this country, this nation, if it ever was, is no longer a Christian nation per se. Is it possible as a Christian to be a good citizen in a country that is moving away from the principles set forth in God's Word? The Apostle Paul would say yes, absolutely. It's both possible and it's expected of us as believers. He touches on this issue in our passage for this morning, Romans chapter 13, where he's instructing the Romans on what good citizenship looks like for followers of Christ. Now the very presence of this passage in Scripture means that this is an important issue for Christians, a discipleship issue. This chapter is in the larger context of chapters 12 through uh, 16, which, which, as you know, begins with Paul urging Believers to offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him, our spiritual act of worship. He tells us not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's all about the lordship of Christ in our lives. The next several chapters then spell out what that looks like. And here in chapter 13, Paul sets forth what Christ's lordship looks like in relationship to earthly authorities. How to live by faith in a world that wants to squeeze us into its mold. How we as citizens of heaven can be good citizens of our countries on earth. Look with me at the passage in Romans 13. Verse 1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In this context, Paul seems to be referring to the civil authorities of the Roman government. For us, the parallel would be our state, local, and national laws and authorities. We must submit ourselves to the governing authorities. A pretty remarkable statement coming from Paul, and I imagine probably very difficult for the Roman believers to swallow. Their government wasn't one that guaranteed and protected their religious freedom. Their government was interested in destroying the Christian faith. It was the adversary. It was the enemy of the gospel. It was Rome who took the Savior and crucified him. He was flogged by Roman whips, fastened to the cross by Roman nails pierced by a Roman spear, and entombed by a Roman seal. How could Paul expect our fellow Christians who lived in that time to submit to the political forces that opposed the kingdom of Christ? Our government today looks almost godly compared to the government under which the recipients of Paul's letter lived. And yet... There are no qualifiers in Paul's statement, no exemption clauses to make it easier for them to to accept. The instructions are clear and direct. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Paul's rationale would have been unsettling for them as well. He says, "...for there is no authority except that which which God has established." The authorities that exist have been established by God. I can imagine how some of those Roman Christians might have responded. Established by God? What about when the government is corrupt, evil? What about when the government is going completely against the law of God? Are we required to obey it then? the Christians Paul was writing to were increasingly being forced to wrestle with where their ultimate allegiance needed to be. It's easy enough to say that that believers should obey God and country when when the laws of the land don't contradict the laws of God. But for these Roman Christians... This was increasingly more difficult, and it's possible that there were some who suggested, maybe even openly advocated, defiance of Roman authority in the name of allegiance to Christ. It's also possible that some advocated another view, one that's actually pretty popular in our culture today. If we just keep quiet, if we just keep our faith to ourselves and don't talk about Christ, maybe we can avoid trouble. Uh, These questions and this dilemma, this has come up in our culture a few times. And I think it's probably going to, I think we're probably going to have to wrestle with it more in the future. It seems to me that the the gap between the church and the culture is is widening here in America as the culture continues to pull away from its Judeo-Christian moorings. I think the day is coming when When we as believers will have to choose more definitively just where our ultimate allegiance lies. This brings up the question then of civil disobedience. Is civil disobedience ever appropriate? Again, this is a lordship issue. And we have to look at the overall witness of scripture to answer this question. There are several instances of civil disobedience in the Scriptures, some of which God not only allows but actually praises. Exodus 1 records for us one such instance. The Hebrew midwives, because they feared God, refused Pharaoh's command to kill all the baby boys born to the Israelites. The Scripture tells us that God was kind to the midwives, and because they feared God, He gave them families of their own. The book of Daniel records two instances of civil disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace when they refused to obey the king's edict to bow down and worship the image he had created. We find that in chapter 3. God saved them from the fire and put his stamp of approval on that act of civil disobedience. A few chapters later, in chapter 6, we see Daniel, who continued to pray to the Lord faithfully, even after the king established the edict that for 30 days no one could pray to any god or man other than the king. Daniel defied that. He was thrown into the lion's den for defying that order. But God showed his approval of this act of civil disobedience by rescuing him from the lion's. In the New Testament book of Acts, when Peter and John were arrested by the Jewish authorities and told not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they answered, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. These instances and others like them make it difficult to conclude that Paul had in mind Blind obedience regardless of the circumstances. The principles used to decide when submission to authority is appropriate are complex and they're difficult to apply to every person in every case. Bud Benson, in his commentary on Romans concludes, concludes several things. He concludes that God has ordained human government as means of restraining evil and promoting the good. Individual governments are an expression of God's plan and to the degree they advance the good of humanity, they are to be respected and obeyed. Christians must maintain final allegiance to God. When the specific commands of God contravene the laws of government, Christians must obey God while still maintaining a respect for the unrighteous government that rules them. Now this does not mean that that as Christians we'll be immune to the to punishment by the civil authorities. If our allegiance to God requires disobedience to civil authorities, we have to be prepared to face whatever consequences that may bring. John Piper is correct in saying that as Christians, we must submit to Christ alone as king and whatever other submission to humans we render to do it within the limits of the lordship of Christ and always for the sake of his glory. So, we are to submit to the governing authorities within the limits of the lordship of Christ. Paul certainly could not endorse all of the actions of the Roman government, but he placed himself under its authority anyway. For example, we read in Acts that, that he spoke with respect to the rulers during his trial. He recognized the authority of his jailer even when escape from prison might have been possible in Acts 16, and he never spoke in negative terms of the soldiers who guarded him in Rome. In as much as it was possible, Paul chose to submit to the governing authorities, and he instructs us to do the same. The authorities in our governments, local, state, and national, have been established by God, and we must submit to them. Paul, in verse 5, gives us two reasons to submit. Because of possible punishment and because of conscience. Now, most of us do pretty well with submitting because of possible punishment. None of us wants to end up with tickets or fines or jail times, do we? I'm pretty sure that the Church's Benevolence Fund isn't available to cover your traffic tickets or I doubt it would bail you out of jail, you know. Um, It's pretty easy to submit for fear of negative consequences. But what about because of conscience? Do we submit because it's the right thing to do? Is our submission inward or is it outward? Paul goes on to include in this the paying of taxes. probably pretty safe to assume that uh, most of us aren't big fans of taxes. Most of us aren't eager to give away our income to the government. I once saw a button that said, Born free, taxed to death. I'm convinced that whoever wrote that must live here in our great state of New York. Paul says in verses 6 and 7 to give to everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now keep in mind the context in which Paul writes. Tax collectors in New Testament times were often corrupt, and the taxes were often exorbitant. One could make a compelling argument that Rome did not deserve all of the taxes they demanded. And yet... Both Jesus and Paul indicated that that Christians should respect the authority of the state and pay what they owe in taxes. Most of us here probably pay our taxes, both for fear of punishment and for conscience sake. We know it's the right thing to do, and and even if if we don't agree with with, uh, how the government uses the money or how they collect it or whatever, we we probably obey and do that. But I'm more intrigued with the last part of these verses, paying what we owe in respect and in honor. Do we respect, do we honor those in positions of authority? The context of this passage seems to link this with submitting to the authorities. Paul says in verse 6 that the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing That meant that Paul was asking Roman Christians to respect and honor authorities in a government that was often hostile to them, hostile to God. I wonder what that looks like for us today. Our tendency, I'm afraid, is to badmouth those in office whose views differ from ours. I'm certainly all for political discussion and debate I think that's a healthy thing, but I know that we tend to make our political views very personal. It seems to me that all too often, instead of respecting and honoring those in positions of authority with whom we disagree, we disdain them, we belittle them, we assign them sinister motives, denounce them as evil. I've heard Christians say some very nasty things about President Bush, declaring him to be an idiot, an imbecile a warmonger out of touch with reality and taking this country on a path toward destruction. I've also heard Christians bad-mouthing the presidential candidates this year, most notably Senators McCain, Clinton, and Obama. You know, I have to say I'm, I'm honestly surprised and saddened by the venom that I have heard on occasion from otherwise godly people when it comes to their views of those in political office. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, people seem not to realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of character. I challenge you, I challenge us to determine now to truly respect and honor those running for office, those in office, and speak of them accordingly. We we certainly don't have to agree with any politician's particular views or policies. That's one of the beautiful things about this country. But let's not forget that these are people that are created in the image of God, and He loves them. And the Scriptures tell us that He is the one who has placed them in their positions of authority. Whether you support Senator McCain, Senator Obama, or another candidate, We should give all the candidates the respect and honor they deserve as civil servants. Do we pay what we owe to those in government? Do we respect those in authority? Do we honor them? Paul's charge to submit to the governing authorities goes beyond just civil government officials. It applies to other authorities as well. You see, Paul chooses to associate all authority with God. He says there is no authority except that which, has, which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Bud Bentz again says, while the passage here speaks directly of political power, Paul will appeal for the same attitude of submission when the authority is spousal, parental, social, or ecclesiastical. Paul's appeal to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is not an appeal for believers to be doormats of society, but is rather a solid recognition of the value of respecting and using authority for the good of the whole. Do we willingly submit to those in authority over us, our bosses, our supervisors, our parents, our principals? You see, our attitude and response to civil and governmental authority may reflect our attitude toward any authority in general. And I fear that there are many, even in the church, whose attitude toward authority in general is one of rebellion. Pride is the root of rebellion, and rebellion resents authority. A rebellious heart is never a submissive heart. It may be a compliant heart, but it is never a submissive heart. A person with a compliant heart obeys for fear of punishment or from some other motive, but resents the authority that it is obeying. A person with a submissive heart, on the other hand, obeys willingly out of love, knowing that it pleases the Lord and is the right thing to do. A person with a submissive heart realizes his or her continual debt to love one another. As Paul says in verse 8, whoever loves has fulfilled the law. And so a person with a submissive heart, one that seeks to fulfill the law through love, will not only comply with authority, but will honor and respect authority as well. Who are the authorities in your lives? Do you have a submissive, willing heart toward them? Or do you resent their authority? Apart from our submission to the lordship of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we all bend toward rebellion and resentment of authority, whether government or other authorities in our lives. This is a lordship issue. We are called to submit to those in authority over us, both government rulers and others with responsibility over us. Paul would say that good citizenship of heaven and of earth requires it. So the question for us is where does our allegiance ultimately lie? C.S. Lewis said, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. As long as we live in this fallen world, we need to do our best To live with integrity as citizens of our earthly nation. We have much to say to our culture and to our world. An easy task? Not always. There are certainly things in our society which define us in this world as Americans and which influence us daily, but which are incompatible with the life of Christ and with the cross. It's possible that a time will come when we'll be forced to disobey the civil authorities for Christ's sake. We never know. By the same token, it's important to stress that that just as we at some point may find ourselves in a situation where we need to disobey the civil authorities for Christ's sake, so all of our obedience to the governing authorities should be for Christ's sake as well. We never have two masters. Our submission to any person is not only limited by the lordship of Christ, it is also an expression of our yieldedness to that lordship. Every time we say yes to any law, it should be a yes to Christ as well. John Piper says, If we are ever going to appear to the world as aliens and exiles on the earth, then we're going to have to go back and renew the declaration of allegiance by which we became Christians, namely, Jesus is Lord. To declare Jesus is Lord and to renew our pledge of allegiance to him requires a submissive heart, one that realizes that the debt of love Paul talks about here in verse 8 is a debt that can never be fully repaid This debt of love calls us to honor and respect authority and each other and to daily clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of this great nation, but how much greater still to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And so we can confidently and expectantly say, with the early church, Jesus is Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you govern the affairs of our world with truth and justice and mercy. Lord, we look at our world and we see brokenness and we see injustice and we see pain and suffering and sorrow, and yet we know that you are in control and that one day there will be justice. We thank you for this country that we live in. I pray that you would enable us, through the power of your Spirit at work, to live as good citizens of the United States of America or good citizens of whatever country we call home. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment, give us submissive hearts, first of all, submissive to you, and out of that submission to you, submissive to the authorities over us, and we'll give you thanks, in Jesus' name, amen.